Welcome to Make Things That Matter, the podcast where we explore impactful products and the cultures that create them. I'm your host, Andrew Scottsko, and if I'm doing my job well, each episode of this show will help you to do meaningful work, make things that make things better, and have a great experience doing it. I'm your host, Andrew Scottsko, and my guest in this episode is Pam Fox Rollin. Pam is an executive coach and strategist with extensive experience in senior team development, especially in the worlds of healthcare and technology. And I am delighted to bring her back to your ears. She was last here on this show in the summer of 2020, way back in episode 22. This is a conversation about conversations. Now, I know that sounds a little meta, but hang with me for a sec. Specifically, this is a conversation about the missing conversations that leaders are not having. These are the conversations that are underneath all of the performance issues, underneath all of the trust issues between departments. This is about the conversations you may not be having, which are the difference between building a truly committed team in the future you care about and having a group, which is a team in name only. So with all that, please enjoy learning how to turn groups into teams with the one and only Pam Fox Rollin. Pam, it's so good to have you back. Welcome. Thank you, Andrew. It's really good to be back. Oh, it's always a pleasure to have you back and to hang out with you. And I was, we were just saying before we hit record, it has been almost, it's been over three years since our last episode on this. It's just, just bananas. It was episode number 22, July 2020. I cannot believe that. So much has happened since then. Oh. And I think back in July 2020, we didn't have any idea that the craziness would last so long. Oh, no. No, no, no. I think we were like, all right, you know, we just got to hang in for a couple months. We're going to make it. It's going to be okay. <laughs> oh. oh, boy. The things we thought. Yeah. What is, I'm so curious. Like, I, well, there's a lot we're going to get into this conversation. But just since we're, since we're having a bit of a walk down memory lane, what do you think has surprised you the most about the three years since our last conversation? What has surprised me the most is how many critical hires companies have made from an area that is not their geography. And that is really kind of new, at least to this degree. I mean, you always had, you know, some company that I would work with that had their CFO in New York, right? Public Mm -hmm. company, Mm -hmm. and they would fly back and forth. But now I work with companies where the executive team is scattered all over the country and they want their people to come back in. That feels very strange to me. That feel, is that, that's got to be going a little weirdly, right? <laughs> Where they're like, wait a it second, does. like you're telling me I have to come back in, but you're not? Right. Yeah, there's a lot of that going. Okay. All right. Well, I, I, we, we might have to circle back to that later in this conversation. It feels like that might be, become relevant on some of, our, some of the topics we're going to explore. Um, so one of the things that especially was just my my greatest excuse to bring you back, and not that I ever need any reason to want to talk to you, is that you have this fabulous new book that has just come out called Growing Groups into Teams. And for the listener, I uh, I, I say that it's a fabulous book because I actually read it and devoured it and, and really enjoyed it. So I'm not just saying that. So please go get it. Um, but Pam, you know, one of the things that I thought was so interesting, and we're going to get into all the the book itself here, but one of the things I thought was fascinating about this was that you you seem to you all seem to have used the book writing itself as an exercise in exactly what you're talking about in the book. So I'd love you to just start there. Totally. It was a book about teams written by a team. 
And we went through everything that any team does. And we're a team in real life anyway. You know, most of us have a good part of our work in that, um, at least for eight of the authors. And the other five are, you know, good pals of us who we love to partner with. So we we team together around the other work we do. But my goodness, you know, in writing a book, everything comes up. Different people's perspectives in what they think is important and not important. And then mm-hmm. people's perspectives on each other's work and all of that. So we have had three years of a really good workout on our ability to give feedback and to hear it and do things with it. So uh, my favorite comment on this was from our illustrator who didn't work with us in person, but we were on tons of Zoom calls and then she would get feedback from the team about this and that. And she said, you all are so, so wholesome. You're, you're so nice. I don't know what to do with it. You're so wholesome. Like you really give the feedback, you give the hard stuff, um, but you're do it in a way that makes it easy to hear and nobody's wrong for their perspectives. And she said, I just wish all my clients gave feedback the way you guys did. Hmm. What Could you give us an example of that? Because I think that right there is something that we would all, you know, we could all be better at. Oh, sure. So I don't know if you noticed, but the illustrations in the book where there are people, it's far more diverse than mm-hmm. most illustrations. Mm-hmm. Yeah. and. I knew that was a value of ours. And so I let the illustrator know and she was really happy with the people silhouette she came up with. And I was really happy with the people silhouettes we came up with. And we brought it to the team. And they're like, hmm. Hmm. Yeah, there's nobody there who looks like me. Ooh. Um, but yeah, there's nobody there who and and so it was a moment of okay. And But the way they said it was inside of our shared care, our common concern for people feeling included and represented, because we know from all the research, as well as just being humans, that when people are included, they do their best work. What? So it's good to have the, you know, it's one of those things where it's good to have the research, but it's... um kind of sad that we also have to have the research where we can't just be human and say, yeah. Like, why, why do we need a white paper to tell us to do the thing we already know we should just do? Exactly. What that's reminding me of, since you and I, when we talk, we do some side tangents. What's that worth reminding me of is when I did a... Buckle up, listener. Buckle up. <laughs> yeah. I did a program for a healthcare company I was working with for a couple of years. And we were talking about just like taking a pause. So before you just blurt out your reaction, you could pause and then respond thoughtfully. Give yourself time to just, they're like, breathe. We don't have time to breathe. It like, of course we breathe. What's that about? And so literally I handed out a research, a five-page research report on the importance of breathing. And I'm like, do I really want to get it? You're like, you're a healthcare company. Do I have to you're sell you a on this? Healthcare company. And apparently you need to be sold on breathing. Okay. Okay. So okay. now nice. now that we've done that, um, so yeah, people sometimes want research that it's important to include people. And I'm very delighted to say that the thing that your mom told you to do in kindergarten is still relevant when you're a leader in a company. And when people feel 
actually included like scene and they see pictures that look like them and they're well represented, then they feel like, yeah, I can relax a little bit here and give my best work. So that showed up in our illustrations. We went through uh, several rounds of refining that. And we are all so delighted with what she came up with. And it never would have happened if we didn't open ourselves up for feedback and take it seriously. I love that. And one of the things that I think, you know, just to extract this little nugget from everything you just shared there, you know, you, you said something to the effect of when team members gave their feedback, they did it inside the sort of structure or the, the language of your shared care, I think is, is that the language you, yeah. you used. I think it's a term a lot of people may not be familiar with. Like, what do you mean by that when you say that? So one of the things that's important on a team is having some, you can call them values, but having some things that you all think are important. And you've already mm -hmm. talked through some of that. Now, sometimes those values can feel in conflict. Like we've got a value of getting things done, getting it shipped, getting it all out the door. And we also have a value of making it really easy for the user. And so those values can be, you're nodding your head vigorously in product, like that's part of the game. Um, so those values can feel in conflict, but at least you can speak to the value of, God, we really want to get this thing shipped and people aren't going to look at you funny and sideways. So on our team, we can speak about the value of having people feel included and represented. Yeah. You know, one of the things that, that really um, that feels like a good pivot point into this, something that was in the book that I thought was really worth calling out and maybe would be a good kind of jumping off point into the into the core ideas in the book, which was that, you know, you talk about this idea of a shared care, which which to me, just as I listen to you, feels really resonant and related to the idea of this like shared promise, which I think was one of the one of the like kind of keystones of, of yes. what actually separates a group from a team. So I'd love like, let's start there, because I think. Totally. When we, when I think a lot of folks listening to this, when they hear, okay, group versus team, like they kind of have, have a bit of a spidey sense about it. They, they, they understand there's some difference there, but I don't think most people have really spent the time to, to parse it out like you have. So, so why don't we just start there? Like, what is the difference actually between group and a team? We say there's two fundamental things that make a difference. One is a team has a shared promise. That means that everybody on the team is trying to get something accomplished in the real world. Okay. That is different from a group of people who each have their own task and they're accountable for doing their tasks. They're all good with that. They want to make their task good. And then they throw their task to the leader or the customer or whatever. And whatever happens with it is not necessarily something they're accountable for. Mm. So, so wait, just to make sure I understand yeah. that first one. So it sounds like the real difference there is almost like in, in a group, someone is maybe responsible for, I don't, I hesitate to say checking the box, but a little bit of checking the box and then they, their job is done as opposed to a team is like, well, yeah, you may have done that thing, but what happened in the world with the thing you did? Like was exactly. the outcome at what we intended? Did we deliver the promise? Yeah. And there's a, a story we tell in the book in the chapter about why make a team where there was a really consequential team that we worked with that was responsible for 
um, technology infrastructure optimization that was like half a billion dollars worth of spend and involved the whole company and all of that. And when the person that we worked with came in and was asked to take that over, you know, they were behind deadlines and delayed and whatever. And the execs of the company were like, we don't get it. We, there are our best people on this initiative. We don't understand how they could be producing substandard work and be so delayed. And what she found out is as we talked to people, they were each still seeing themselves as, you know, I'm from like um, this part of the, the, the technology stack. I'm from this group. I'm from whatever. And so there are 13 people kind of seeing themselves as representatives and they're going to go do their task. And none of them were really committed to the overall promise of this initiative. Hmm. And it just didn't work. Is that something that you've seen this sort of, well, I did my part thing going on? Yeah, you know, the, I have seen that, what you're, what you're pointing out. And, and that thing you were just saying at the end there where you're, you're sort of, it seemed to me anyway, you were emphasizing the commitment aspect of it. Um, yeah. that, that does feel kind of like where it, where it lives and dies, where I've seen, when I've seen what you're talking about, almost every case I can think of right now, it, when you dig into it afterwards, it turns out, you know, that person, they were just kind of, they, I don't want to say they were phoning it in. That feels too harsh, but they weren't, they just weren't that committed to the thing. And so they didn't do the extra effort, the extra, just that extra juice was missing, basically. That's. That's part of it. And now add the team element on top of it, because you can get people who are working so hard to make their right. tasks look good. But if right. they're not committed to the overall outcome, the shared promise that you have to the customer or the downstream department or whatever, if they're not committed to that just as passionately, then when anything changes and they need to rejigger or when somebody needs help, when they need help, when they need a space that is safe for them to say, hey, I'm not sure exactly what step to take and I I would really value your input here. They just don't do it. They're really focused on making their individual task great. And if the world looks the same on the date that the product is to be shipped or the outcome enjoyed as it did on the day the initiative was first conceived, then maybe that would work. And if they planned it perfectly and if mm -hmm. there were no breakdowns. Mm -hmm. um, but that doesn't often happen in the real world. Yeah. So one of the things I'm curious about here is, you know, I'm thinking about um, one of the companies I'm working with that I was on, the, on a call with just a few hours ago. And we were talking about a situation that, as you're speaking, doesn't sound too dissimilar than what you're saying. I mean, the details are, are different, but the, the pattern. And the question I would I would raise reflecting on that conversation right now is, in this case, we were talking about a person on the team, or, or maybe unclear if it's a team or a group yet. We'll, we'll get into that. But um, but that person's working so hard. Like, wow, that person. I mean, they are putting in the hours. There is no doubting that. And yet there does seem to be something missing. And it's hard to kind of put your finger on what it is. So I guess my, my first question would be, you know, just even very practically for, for a leader listening to this in whatever part of the business they're in. But like, so what's the difference between someone who's like really working hard, putting the hours in all that and someone who is committed? How do you, and how do you tell? So you tell by talking with them. 
I know that seems really radical in the age when we put everything up. Like the thumbs up on Slack means that they're committed. No, it doesn't. I love that call out. (laughs) So good. But they emojied my 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 two liner in Slack. (laughs) We talked about Pam. They're in. Obviously. I I think we've got to get away with this notion. By the way, I love Slack. Um, love so many people who work there. Like great things going on, but it doesn't actually substitute for a conversation that says, "What are you committed to here?" And if their answer is, "Well, I'm committed to get you the thing," and then the next thing, and the thing after that, then you've got a perfect opportunity to invite them to think bigger and frankly, more usefully and more focused on results. Like, let's talk about the results that you and I and the rest of our team are committing to. And it might turn out that that task that you've committed to do gets us part of the way, but doesn't get all the way that we need. And so really to open up in conversation what we're asking them to commit to, which is producing a result in the real world. Mm-hmm. And so that makes sense. And it feels like that could be very easily, I, could, I feel I could see someone interpreting that in two pretty different ways. I'm curious if this is Go something you've been it. running into. And so I, I can imagine someone interpreting that as saying, okay, I'm signing up. I'm committed to, you know, deliver this result. And, and that result is something like you might see on, for example, your OKRs, right? It might be like, okay, we're going to whatever, we're going to ship this product and the, or we're going to, we're going to do whatever we're going to do. But the goal of that is to, you know, um, break into this market and get six reference customers in this market. For example, like that would be, uh, that would be aimed at getting product market fit in some new domain. Awesome. Um, is it, is that what you mean? Because I could also see someone taking it in perhaps a, I'm trying to find the right word here, but what I was going to say was like the, the broader impact direction, right? Of like, okay, you know, trying to really tap into some sort of environmental, social mission, that kind of thing. Do you see any distinction here? Or is this actually two sides of the same coin? I think it's the same sort of thing. Because ideally, if a company wants to make that kind of impact in a a community, some sort of ESG impact, that they would have that as part of their OKRs. But yes, OKRs, as you know, I love them when well done. And I've worked Mm -hmm. with a lot of companies that have been implementing OKRs. (laughs) Oh, okay. Yeah, the difference between things that are well done and not. Um, So part of the challenge with OKRs is it points us completely in the right direction. And it forces us to have the conversations with our upstream and downstream groups and all of that to say, does this add up to the impact that we want to make this quarter in the marketplace? And then people go back, scurry back to their desks and do whatever task needs to relate to it. So unless people are a team aiming to deliver the objective, it doesn't actually work well in my experience. Yeah. When OKRs work really well is when a team owns an objective. And so the team is absolutely committed to that objective. And if it's a high-level objective and you've got 200 people underneath that, great. What are their OKRs and what team owns that objective? OKRs is a perfect methodology to work with teams 
if you take it to that point, because that objective is the shared promise we're talking about. Mm, beautiful. For the listener, if you could see, I was nodding so hard, I almost hit the microphone because I love everything <laughs> she just said. But so, you know, th- what's really interesting here is like this, this feels like it starts to open something up. It's, a, it's maybe a little nuanced, which is about uh, reward mechanisms. And, and how do we think about individual and team reward mechanisms? Because we know incentives work. We know they're powerful and they shape behavior. So talk to me a little bit about that. If we're thinking about this, I'm really trying to create a team and not just a, a group that's pointed in the same direction. How does that change the way I need to think about rewards, comp, all of that? Super. So let, let's pick up for a moment. There are two things that we said it takes t- for a group to become a team. One of them is a shared promise. The second is that each person is committed to coordinate well to produce that outcome. Mm, Yep. We missed the second one. Thank you for bringing that back. Yeah. And so if I'm tasked with coordinating, but I'm only rewarded for me doing my thing, then Mm. we've got a disconnect. And there's a paper that I absolutely love that I read when I was a baby undergraduate in organization studies. And it's called On the Folly of Rewarding A While Hoping for B. And so we reward people for doing their individual tasks well, and we hope that they're going to coordinate with each other. Just like you reward key leaders for hitting objectives in their areas. And you will hope that they will do that in coordination with the other executives and functions. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. There are companies that are making advancements in that, but I think not fast enough because incentives make a huge difference. And Andrew, we're primed that way. Like in school, all the way through up, like there's individual assignments. And you're, yep. you get an A or not. And then there's the dreaded group assignment. Very well named. If it were a team assignment, it yep. might not be so dreaded. The dreaded the, group project. <laughs> the group project. Oh, my God. Um, How many times like, did you wind up covering for somebody else who didn't do their part, didn't coordinate well, never understood what it was that the project was about, et cetera, et cetera. So these are the habits that people have been trained in for the 15 some whatever years of their formal schooling. And then they get into work life and they are unprepared to do that second part of coordinating. So mm. I have so much respect for first level managers because they're the ones that have to show entering workers and frankly, There's a lot of people who haven't learned this lesson at any age, but especially to show the newer people coming in how it is that we support each other to achieve common goals. I love what you're pointing at. I want to actually get a little bit more specific here. So let's talk a little bit about those first line managers. And so I have I kind of two questions that I'm thinking about from one I was just talking to the other day. And one would be, I'm trying to imagine what that person would say inside this conversation. And, and one would be, okay, Pam, you sold me on this team thing. Everybody knows teams are good. Let's assume for, for the moment, they don't need a white paper on it. But how do I know which one I've got? And if I don't have a team, what do I do? 
Okay, that's what her whole book is about. How long is okay. this podcast episode? <laughs> we'll be we'll wish you for a little less than an hour, but let's just start with like one or two things. <laughs> okay, well, sure. So A, go buy Pam's <laughs> book. We'll link to that in the show notes. But then, you know, in terms of like one thing they could start with, let's start there. The first thing is to notice whether there's a shared promise, because if there's no shared promise, there's no team. And so one way to do this really simply, and I've done this with teams at all levels, is to ask them to jot down what is what is winning in the next three mm. months? What is it we're all trying to do? If this team is successful, what are we producing? And then to compare those notes. And teams that aren't aligned in that way are just, there's no way they can be as effective, mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. right? For the second part, are we coordinating to achieve that outcome? You can do a quick survey. You can, God, do sticky dots. You can vote. You can do a survey online. <laughs> and we've got a 25-question survey. You can come up with your own that is, you know, from almost always to almost never, people here support each other's efforts. Um, when mm. there is a conflict, we discuss it with the person that we have that concern with. You know, there's just a number of, in a way, really basic behaviors that say we're coordinating well. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And ironically, often it's the executive team that least meets the standards. Hmm. That is surprising. Wait, so, so wait, what, why is that? Because I, you would have, I would expect certainly that the exec team would be the one that's, you know, the most dialed in, the, certainly the highest compensated, uh, the highest leverage, et cetera, et cetera. So what's up with that? And, and I guess extending that, if that's true, why do most orgs tolerate, I don't know, mediocre teams at any level, but especially at the executive level? I'll start with the second one. Many people haven't seen it done well. So they mm. just don't know how. Mm -hmm. On the first part, why are executive teams often the ones who least meet the basic sort of 10 behaviors that you'd expect when you're coordinating well with other people? You're sharing mm -hmm. information, you're giving feedback, you're offering support, you know, all that kind of stuff. This is the team when for many people, it is the first time that they are on a cross-functional team, other than initiatives that were actually groups. So hmm. the chief marketing officer got there by being a rock star marketer, and the head of engineering got there by being a, head, a great engineer, and the CFO is fabulous at finance. And they get to this hyper cross-functional executive team, and all those things we were talking about that our graphic designer uh, usually deals with at mm -hmm. other organizations um, where they don't know how to give feedback and they're not direct and they don't share information and all of that stuff. People don't know how to have those conversations with people who have really different priorities, ways of thinking, their teams are different, all of that. And it's a conversational capacity that often hasn't been built. Add on to that, that incentives are often structured, particular to that executive's role, with some add-on bonus for the organization overall. But often it's not enough 
to get people to say, hey, we've got to do this a new way. The number one opening spot I see for this, Andrew, is when a new CEO comes in and says, holy crap, this isn't working very well. What do we do? (laughs) And that's where we come in. what? Yeah. We're not going to be able to transform this organization if the team is doing all this dysfunctional stuff. Yeah. And often they see it more clearly coming in from the outside than they probably saw it at the last organization where they were a CEO and gotten kind of used to the dysfunction. Mm. No, I, I really like this. And the, you know, there's a, there's a line from the book that I wanted to pull out that just feels really like where you're going and what you're pointing at with this, that I just, I loved this one line from the book more probably, possibly more than any other single line in that, in that entire book, which was, there was a line in there that said something to the effect of, it was talking about like, what is it that leaders do, right? What what do, what's our job as leaders, basically? And the line was something like, leaders build futures that matter through conversations. And I've never heard that before, but man, I love that. So I, I want to hear more about that. And it feels exactly like the capacity you're talking about. Yeah, that's kind of the whole game, Andrew. Oh, good. You picked out a good, you picked out a good line. So, I think most CEOs know they're responsible for the future. Yeah. yeah and the, the that matters part is like, well, matters to who, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. And the best CEOs I know are really clear about whose perspective matters. And that can vary from industry to industry, from company to company. Um but they're really clear on it matters to, and I certainly hope that customers are high on that list. The best organizations I work with, mm-hmm. like customers would be number one. Mm-hmm. So a future that matters to their customers, because that's how companies have value. Mm-hmm. Uh, so they create value in the world. <laughs> so, um, Well, this is crazy talk, Pam. I know. Build a future that matters through conversations. and. That's the power of the CEO. The power of the CEO is to say, this conversation hasn't happened. And until it does, we will not be able to move forward. Or you two, I notice, don't talk to each other. And that's really troubling because you're product and engineering. (laughs) And I see you sending messages two levels down in the organization But the two of you, I noticed, do not bring me joint proposals, do not build on each other's ideas and meetings, and it's not working. We need the two of you to figure out how to have conversations. And sometimes they can figure that out on their own, and sometimes it's helpful to have some coaching support. But yeah, the number one job of the CEO is to go see what conversations do I need to have with my investors? What conversations do I need to have with my executive team? What conversations need to be happening in the organization that aren't happening? And are people skilled up to have those conversations? Yeah. No, I, this is fascinating because it's it feels both um, unexpected, right? Like I think if you asked a lot of people what is the job of a leader or a CEO, I think they, they would give a very different answer than what you just articulated. But it feels like an it feels like a like an unexpected insight. But what I like about it especially is that it also feels very uh, concrete, very actionable. Like that's that's yeah. not that's not a fuzzy thing you just said. Like that's you need to go create conversations. And there are certain conversations that need to happen and you need to develop the capacity to design, lead, and and hold that conversation. And so that is really intriguing to me. And so I'm really curious, like, how does one do that? Like, if, if, let's say you, you were sitting with a CEO and they're like, okay, 
all right, I can see your broader point here, but then how how do they start to think about moving forward in that way if they take that on as their kind of their mantle? Yeah. So um, before they take that on as their mantle, because usually they're pretty skeptical for a while because they didn't get to where they are because necessarily, or at least they're not aware that it was through conversations. I think a lot of a lot of them got there um, being pretty good at it. So with that CEO or whatever level we're talking about in the organization, and we ask, what is your biggest pain point? We can't move forward this initiative. It's creeping forward and I keep talking to people about it and it's not Mm -hmm. happening. So Mm -hmm. you say that we need conversations like every day I talk to somebody about it. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I'm talking about it. It's not working. Talking about it. Okay. So then we kind of dive into, you know, sort of five wise style on what exactly is going wrong and what is the basis of that. And almost always it comes down to a missing conversation, which is why we named our podcast Missing Conversations. I I, I finally like understood that when I read that line, yeah. by the way. I was like, oh, that's okay. Oh, yeah. <laughs> Uh, yeah. I was like, oh, it makes so sense. So it'll come down to, well, our finance team doesn't believe what so-and-so says. They don't believe that engineering needs more budget. Okay, so have they talked about it? Well, they just, they told engineering, you don't need that much budget. Let's see, what is the actual full conversation that needs to happen there? Or... They'll say, well, somebody on our board said we need to do this. Okay, so what's your conversation with them about that? Because you clearly think that's not a good idea. Oh, I haven't really got back to them on it. I just want to kind of see if we can sort of do it and then say we sort of did it and all of that. So it's like, well, how are you doing in talking with your board? Right? There's there's some conversations to have there. And Almost always, you can map out the things that are missing. And you and I were talking earlier about trust. And mm-hmm. a couple of weeks ago, I was with a team, really enjoy working with a senior team of a public company. And we were supposed to be working on something, but they kept talking about trust. Mm. And they're like, well, what? And we're like, okay, okay, we'll do, do a session <laughs> on trust. Fine, um, we'll talk about trust. But we'll talk about trust. Um, But what they saw is that so many conversations are missing in the organization because this vice president says they don't trust this vice president. So they don't collaborate in the way that needs to happen. So what do we do to diagnose trust and to build and rebuild trust? So that's an important conversation on Mm -hmm. a team. And if I had a, you know, a wand to wave, it would be for people to notice what it is that they don't trust. Like, oh, I totally trust their honesty, but I don't trust actually their skill in this particular thing. I don't think they've got all the chops that they need. Mm -hmm. And then for them to be able to turn that into a conversation. And it sounds almost impossible when we first bring it up to people. Well, I can't say that I don't trust their skill. It's like, well, so instead you're just ignoring their advice and mm. they're getting pissed off. And now there's a rift between your two functions. Of course, you can have that conversation. 
you can say, to succeed with this effort, I think we need high level skills in these two areas, medium level or whatever you want to talk about in these two areas. And I'm concerned that one of those high level skills is missing. What do you think? Mm. Have the conversation. You can even have a conversation of, I I don't trust you're being honest with me. That's a conversation Mm. to have. The more and more we can get really clear with each other and actually be able to collaborate and coordinate the more we can achieve those outcomes we were talking mm-hmm. about. I'm reminded of uh, something you and I talked about offline in, in a, earlier in the summer, which was definitions of trust and dimensions of trust. And, and I, I come back to that fantastic definition of trust from, I think it's Charles Feldman in The, the Thin Book mm-hmm. of Trust, where it's yeah. something very much like trust is, is choosing to make something you value vulnerable to the actions of another person. Something very much like that. Basically saying, I'm going to put something I care about I'm going to expose it and put it at the effect of your actions, which I do not control. Uh, Oh, boy. And that is a little risky. Um, And so we take that and then we take this model of trust that you all have in the book of these sort of five dimensions of of like, okay, Mm -hmm. I I say I don't trust somebody. What do I mean by that? Right. Is it and your five dimensions that you had there, which I just was like, yes, when I saw it was sincerity, competence, reliability, honesty and, and respect, like. Wow, that's that's thinking about it already adds so much nuance to it. So I'm so curious, like, how do you help somebody take that on? Because I feel it, it just occurs to me that if you could, if someone could learn to have the trust conversation, that there's like like the sort of, sort of the master key. I love that master key. That's even better than waving my wand. But that is the skill I would love for people most to have. Um, so first, I would just want to acknowledge that we've adapted that from Bob Dunham at Institute for Generative Leadership, who many of us have studied with, and we're also Mm. Feltman fans too. So there's a few phases of being able to make those distinctions useful. The first is to look around, and often it's easier to work with one relationship, a couple different relationships that you have at work, talking about work relationships, although this applies to personal too. I was, I was just going to ask you, is, this, is it the same outside work too? Because I was like, it's it feels like it would same. probably be the same thing. It's, we're all people. We're all squishy people, Andrew, wherever we're showing we're up. Just, we're just, we're just bringing, humaning. I'm just humaning. I'm trying. We're humaning. We're bringing ourselves. Um, so, and and when I work with, with executive clients, I have them outline, like, what are the, who are the people that you want to get on better with, that you want to share a promise with so that you can produce things in the future that you want to coordinate better with. Mm-hmm. And we look across these dimensions and we diagnose and they can very clearly now, whereas five minutes before they were saying, I don't know, I just don't trust him. But once they saw the distinctions, they're like, okay, yeah, I trust what they're trying to accomplish. So I trust their sincerity. I trust their competence, but I don't trust their reliability. Mm-hmm. Like this is somebody who makes promises and 70% of the time delivers, but that's not good enough for me. Mm-hmm. And it's like, great. What conversation are you going to have with them about that? And they're like, oh, I can't talk with them. I'm going to say, oh, God. You can raise millions and millions of dollars on Wall Street. You can talk with them about this. And to say, hey, I noticed, start with observation, 
I've noticed this time, this time, this time, you said you would do it. And one of the times you delivered and two you didn't. And it's causing me to be concerned about the processes, structures, practices you have. Like, are they sufficient to get things done? Because as you know, we're moving things really fast here and all of that. So I wanted us to get a chance to talk about it. Mm. And you just, you go from there. The more that you can lean into factual observations, what the business needs and how you can support them or how the organization can support them in getting what they need. They might say, yeah, well, you might remember that we pulled back all the budget for PMs. And I actually was really, I had come to rely on my PM to do a lot of (laughs) cluing me in when I was supposed to do things. And you're right, things are breaking left and right. And I'm just like trying to spin the plates. And it's like, okay, great. Well, that's not working. So why don't you figure (laughs) out what it is you need so that we, I can go back to having 100% confidence in your reliability. Like, yeah, or yeah. we can brainstorm together. Like, let's sit down yeah, and look at this. whatever or, is appropriate. Yeah. Yeah. yeah I, I can see as you lay that out, like why the shared promise and, and the commitment to, um, to that promise really is almost the frame or the container for this whole thing. Totally. It, it gives you the context to have this conversation. And, and it also gives you something like, it makes the conversation worth it, right? Because this is going to be uncomfortable right. for a lot of people. And if they're not committed to something bigger... It seems pretty exactly. unlikely they'll they'll you know they'll go through it. Exactly, and when you ask people, and I don't know how many people I've had this conversation with, hundreds, thousands, you know, you you've probably had some of these too. Is like, what was the best team you were on? Tell me about mm-hmm. that team. They're mm-hmm. always like, we were so committed to accomplishing this thing. We were mm-hmm. so committed to it, and often they'll talk about, yeah, we worked, you know, nights and we did whatever, but. You know, say, tell me more about how you work together. Oh, my God, I was so overwhelmed. And like two of my teammates just came over and picked up stuff and got it done. And Mm -hmm. I needed to learn something and people helped me out. And then there was somebody else in the team who was really junior. So I took the person under my wing. Nobody told me to mentor them or I wasn't their orientation coordinator, whatever. But I just knew we had to get them up to skill really fast. So I just kind of took that on. And all of these actions are exactly, as you say, inside that container of your promise. Mm, yeah, this is, it's making a ton of sense now that we're, we're talking about it. And, you know, it. I, I just, I'm really, I'm loving this, this framing of, you know, the primary tool in the, in a leader's toolbox is conversations and, and the ability to design to, to spot the conversation that's needed to design it to to hold it to guide it whatever the case may be I, I'm so curious like I think a lot of folks are going to resonate with that idea but want to a little more in terms of how to how okay how do I do that Pam so if, if I'm a leader you know let's say I'm thinking of a client of mine right now who is a head of product and their executive team they like the conversations have started you know, so there's the, 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 the conversation is starting to flow, the information is starting to flow, but there are these sort of lurking skeletons in the closet that fall, I think, probably under the trust conversation, other related ones as well that are not specifically on the trust. But I'm curious if you have a leader who's on board with this concept, but they want to learn how to level up their conversational capacity. They've never, no one's ever taught them that. They never even heard it put this way before. What should they do? They should look for a missing conversation and find a way to have it. A missing conversation that matters. Mm -hmm. Um, Somebody on the team 
hasn't been producing at their usual level for a while and you've just kind of ignored it, but it's really dampening the progress the team can make, go check in with some Mm -hmm. empathy. Hey, Mm -hmm. I'm concerned about you. Uh, What's going on? Is there some way we can help? There's, I mean, really the chief ability of a great leader is to prioritize which missing conversations to go have. (laughs) Because the missing conversation that you left everything in the board presentation in English spelling instead of in American spelling, I've seen that happen. That was probably not a high priority conversation, but Mm -hmm. that's where they chose to spend their time. (laughs) So it's choosing which conversations to go have. And in fact, that reminds me, there's a a study that just came out from IBM. I'll send you you the link, but it's pretty cool. So there were 3,000 C-level executives that IBM surveyed across like 20 industries in a couple dozen countries. And they asked, what are the most critical skills for your workforce given the dynamic environment, given the emergence of AI, given all of that? What Mm -hmm. do you need in your workforce? Mm -hmm. And the number one was ability to prioritize. Hmm. Can you guess what the number two one was, Andrew? I'm going to guess communicate. Nope, that was number three. Oh, okay. What was number two? Ability to work effectively in teams. Oh, boy. Yep. So this this makes tons of sense to me, and it matches very well with, I mean, this is totally like confirmation bias, but I don't care right now. Uh, it matches very well with, with what I see in reality, and also with what makes sense to me when I really, if I think about it intellectually and analyze it. But one of the things I'm wondering about, and, and this goes to, you know, I'm thinking of, of various folks that I, I spend a lot of time talking with, especially in, in the product world, you know, there's, we're in this sort of, what are we doing? Are we remote? Are we hybrid? Are we fully located? What, you know, that, that whole thing. I'm curious, like, does that, does that vector of, of change intersect with this at all? Or is this sort of independent of that? It does a bit and it, it kind of almost on the edges rather than directly. And what I mean by that is with our more global teams, it is harder to communicate. So it is harder to build a shared promise. It is harder to check whether we have a shared promise and it's harder to coordinate. Not that it was that easy before, mm. but at least you could pull the people into a room and you didn't mm-hmm. have to wonder if they were going to put the camera on. We also, to deal with this environment, we're more and more using tools. Right. Mm -hmm. And as we talked about earlier, you can't really assess commitment or offer human support via a tool. It's just not how humans are wired. Maybe someday, but the change has just been too fast. Mm -hmm. And we trust people that we actually have conversations with. It doesn't have to be in person, but the teams that I see that are doing the best, yes, they use the tools, but they also make sure they have live conversations and Often the ones that I see be really successful, they pull people together in person mm-hmm. every half year, if not every quarter, sometimes mm-hmm. more than that. That's what I'm seeing Because the ability to align, it just doesn't live in Google Sheets and it doesn't live in Slack. Yeah, it might live in Zoom and a live conversation, but that's even then that's almost like tiding you over until you, you get some actual FaceTime in person. Um, you can coordinate about tasks. 
you can build some trust about things like reliability. Well, does a person show up to my Zoom call on time with the stuff <laughs> done, right? Yep, yep. But there are some other elements that it's really hard to get a sense of in, you know, in a Zoom environment. So it is helpful to have people come together. And I would say the other thing that is super hard that there's not an easy fix for, but is probably the chief complaint of people at client companies, I would say from the senior director to the C-level, is they're on global teams. And that means they're getting up at 4 a.m. to talk Mm. to some geography, and then they're expected to be on a 9 p.m. call. And it just is killing people's sleep. Mm. Yeah, absolutely going to destroy people. So I, I, I don't know that there's a perfect answer, Andrew. It may be fewer meetings like that. It may be more, a bit longer visits, which isn't possible for everyone, but to go in person and spend a couple of weeks. It may be that um, we do some regional teams and then coordinate across the regional teams in a different way. But boy, um, I would love to hear from your listeners who have figured that out. Mm-hmm. Uh, reach out to me on LinkedIn, Pam Fox Rollin. I would love to hear how your company is dealing with that issue. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, it's something I'm I'm checking in on with with a lot of different people. And you know, one of the things that um, really occurred to me when I was just listening to you right there was, you know, we talk about this idea of you know in the book there's a whole section on distributed teams, and, and mm-hmm. you know there's a lot out there that people are doing and trying, and that's that's all good. But I think one of the issues with it is actually perhaps the the missing conversations angle that you you've you've found here, which is that. You know, when I, when I think about like a lot of the quote unquote team building type efforts that people take on and there's the, the ones that are more stereotypical and cheesy. And then there's the ones that people, whatever, whatever people are doing. Right. Right. Um, a lot of them feel trite. Uh, a lot of them are, are focused on, I don't know, purely trying to create some sense of personal connection. Um, and, and I, ironically, I think that. Maybe it's not working because they're skipping over the conversations that are the actual foundations of a team, like you're talking about, like totally. shared purpose, vision, uh, a promise, a commitment, mutual, like all that stuff, which is, you know, people aren't dumb. People like want to do real stuff. And it's like, okay, exactly. what are we talking about? Like, what are we talking about here? Exactly. Like, exactly. I don't think, you know, like, yeah, I'm happy if I know your favorite color and whatever, but like what I really want to talk about is like, what are we doing here? <laughs> exactly. Yes. You know, I'm not above 10 minutes as something that's personal and fun and warm and wonderful and connective. That's that's all to the good. Often those things are best left for meals and walks and different things in between, which is, of course, impossible on Zoom. But um, yes, more than anything, I want to know what are we here to accomplish? How are we going to go about that? What support can I expect from this team? And just to dive in a little bit further on support, because I think for some people, they're like, oh, that means you want me to do the other person's work. And like sometimes that's actually needed. But usually what we're talking about is help them learn something, help them get to know somebody else in the organization, help them understand the context because you've been Mm -hmm. working in this industry longer or you happen to know this customer very well or whatever it is, and you can kind of clue them in. If you're really committed to a shared outcome, then you want the people on your team to have that background information. It may be 
you know, uh, I know you can do it. <laughs> and maybe a little bit of encouragement. Mm-hmm. But often it looks like actually making it easier for them to get their part of the teamwork done. No, I love it. And, and you know, the things you're just saying there, this is one of the things that is certainly in, in product land. We talk a lot about this idea of the strategic context. And this is just so squarely in it of like, okay, let's do, let's just get real clear. Like, what are we doing here? How do we know it's working? Who's it for? What's it for? It's, you know, I don't know. You can go, you can cut this many, many different ways. Um, but I just, yeah, I just love what you're pointing to here. So this is fantastic. Just in, in starting to wrap up here, Pam, the, the, what I'd love to ask sort of two closing questions. First question would be for a leader who's convinced by our dialogue here, by our exchange, and they say, all right, I'm into this conversational approach to leadership. What would you recommend as their next starting point, in addition to buying your book, which they should already do, but what else would you, would you suggest that they do? Um, I'm going to tell them they should buy your book, but what's the second thing? And then finally, what is the key mindset shift that they can make internally in terms of how they relate to this conversational process that will unlock it for them? I love it. Okay. So the first thing about somebody who's ready to to do this, I'm gonna I'm I'm laughing a little bit internally because they are already leading in conversations. The conversations are just pointed at either things that don't matter or they're not having them really well. So the number one thing you can do, go back to it, is build a shared promise. Mm. If we're winning, our team exists to accomplish this, right? And that is the foundation of us being here. That's why we're here. And one of the things we say in the book is no promise, no team. Mm. So the key mindset shift is I am not here to make sure all the people get all the tasks done. I am here to make sure that the people are working with each other sufficiently that we can produce the outcome, which usually will mean some changes along the way. There'll be additional insights. The customer will decide they want something different. Production needs them to get something different, whatever it is. So the group has to be able or rather in this case, the team has to be able to navigate those breakdowns to be able to produce an outcome that is satisfying to the folks that receive it. And that may be the end customer, that may be the uh, the next department that touches this thing. But the fundamental mindset shift is, I am inviting people to be committed to producing an outcome together, rather than I am pressuring people to accomplish tasks. Mm. Beautiful. Beautiful. Well, thank you for that. I And thank you for your work. I've been so grateful to explore it more deeply, to step into this, this deeper world of conversations that matter. I was just chuckling because it's almost like the answer, one of the key answers to how do you make things that matter, i.e. the name of this show, is to have the missing conversations, i.e. the name of your show. <laughs> so it does not surprise me that we enjoy talking about this stuff together. So there We will you go, have people. to have you as a guest on Missing Conversations. Anytime, anytime. I will be happy to provide one of those missing conversations. And uh, for the listener, we'll be linking to all of this stuff in the show notes. And please go check out Missing Conversations. Go get the book. All this will be linked to And Pam, where can people find you online if they want to follow up with you? Altusgrowth.com. And there's a link on the about page. 
by my picture, there is a little button for email, or you can go to LinkedIn. Please say that you were listening to Make Things That Matter. That will make me smile. Plus, then I won't just ignore it. So um, I'd be very, very glad to connect with you if you listen to this show. Awesome. Well, Pam, thanks so much for being here and keep doing what you're doing. Thanks, Andrew. Thanks for listening. If you enjoyed this, I'd be so grateful if you could do me a favor and take about 25 seconds to leave a rating and review on Apple Podcasts. That helps me reach way more listeners and it also helps me bring you more great guests. As always, please feel free to reach out to me anytime at connect at makethingsthatmatter.com. And until next time, my friends, leave them better than you found them. See you out there.